optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I answer your personal question? Now what is it an appropriate time? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the four-hour body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com TFS. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hello, boys and girls. Tim Ferriss here. Welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show. This is a Tim Ferriss Radio Hour, which is a special edition. I will come back to that in a second. As always, it's my job to deconstruct world-class performers of all different types, to tease out the habits, routines, breakfasts, or lack thereof, favorite books, etc., that you can test and apply in your own life. They come from many different worlds, entrepreneurship, athletics, entertainment, special operations, and so on. And the goal is tactical practical. It's very specific advice and suggested purchases or otherwise that you can immediately apply. Now, after more than 200 of these conversations, you can start to spot certain patterns. These are the shared habits, hacks, philosophies, tools, and so on that are the common threads. This is very interesting to me and a very common question from you all, for instance. And uh, this ranges from meditation to fitness to many different domains. You start to spot the, the common threads of excellence, even across many different disciplines. So these commonalities were the premise of my most recent book and uh, number one New York Times bestseller, Tools of Titans. So thank you guys so much for making that possible, which is a compilation of many of my favorite lessons, routines, 
tips and so on from a hundred plus different folks. These episodes in the Tim Ferriss Radio Hour are a concentrated dose of the patterns organized around themes that you guys have requested. So in this particular episode, I've gathered some of the best advice from past guests about fitness, nutrition, and for lack of a better term, wellness. Although that term bugs me, but it's a good catch-all. In this episode, I talked to, for instance, retired four-star General Stanley McChrystal to hear how he explains how he not only survived but thrived on one meal per day for years. And I do find that there are certain days your body just says, eat and eat right now. And I used to keep a bin of those hard pretzels in my office in Afghanistan, and I'd grab a handful of those. I also talked to world-famous performance coach Tony Robbins, one of my favorites. Of course, I got started reading a lot of his stuff, even as far back as college. And I asked him to explain his morning discipline and routines. Because your brain's going, you're going to freeze to death. It sounds horrific. It really isn't. You'll find out it's not that painful. Going in my cold plunge at 57 degrees feels more jolting than this does, even though, it's, even though it's colder. Then we dig into the habits of Dutch world record holder, adventurer, daredevil, and all-around crazy guy, Wim Hof, and discuss his ability to control or at least affect, uh, this is consciously, uh, affect his supposed autonomous immune system, which is fascinating. You are the Iceman. You do exceptional uh, features. But nobody is able to do that without that proper training of so many years. And I told him, no, I can train them within 10 days. And we end the episode by getting down and dirty into the science of ketosis with Dr. Dominic D'Agostino, also known as Dom, as we discuss nutritional strategies for peak performers. And Dom, just in case you don't know, he can do a week-long fast and then deadlift 500 pounds for something like 10 repetitions in front of his class that he teaches. So he's not only... Bruce Banner, but the Incredible Hulk. So without further ado, let's get started. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Tim Ferriss Radio Hour. Former Defense Secretary Robert Gates described Stanley McChrystal as, quote, perhaps the finest warrior and leader of men in combat I have ever met, end quote. That is high praise, certainly, and for good reason. McChrystal served as commander of the Joint Special Operations Command, Shorthand is JSOC, you may have heard of that, where he was credited with the death of Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, leader of al-Qaeda in Iraq. His last assignment was as the commander of all American and coalition forces in Afghanistan. Now, we talked about a lot. We had, I want to say, about a two-hour conversation. One of the things that stood out was how Stan rewards himself with a large dinner at night because he doesn't handle smaller meals throughout the day very well. While this might seem odd, it's actually become a more and more popular approach to diet with the rise of intermittent fasting. And there are many different varieties of intermittent fasting. There's 5-2 where you eat normally for five days of the week and then for two days you might eat subcalorically or even go down to say 500 calories or fast completely. So that would be intermittent fasting on a weekly schedule, which I've tested. Then you have, for instance, say 16 hours of fasting and six uh, and eight hours of eating or the or the opposite you could do 18 and six there are many different ways to approach this a lot of the male peak performers over the age of 40 that I've interviewed skip breakfast very high percentage this includes Wim Hof for instance who's coming up later and many many others there are exceptions though who do things slightly differently Art Devaney who's worth checking out he's uh, older than 80 years of age and shredded still an athlete and a economist. And if you haven't heard his episode, you also should hear that one. But he does a reasonably sized breakfast 
trains a few hours later, and then fasts until dinner. So he does breakfast, no lunch, and then dinner. I have at least recently found this to be more effective for me personally, and particularly on training days, if I can time it such that I train earlier in the day, I find it particularly effective. When I skip breakfast, I would say 20% of the time or so, I find myself fatigued in the afternoon because I postpone lunch too long. So if I'm going to skip breakfast, it's important, A, that I wake up on the earlier side, and B, that I have lunch, say, four to five hours after waking. Otherwise, I tend to have a slump in energy in the afternoon and then to self-medicate with caffeine, exogenous ketones, and all sorts of other things. So at the moment, I find that I function best if I'm on, say, a weight training and athletic schedule, meaning I have multiple sessions of movement throughout the week, either breakfast and dinner, skipping lunch, or three meals a day. And I will do my intermittent fasting in a slightly different way. And I, I do think the term intermittent fasting is used so often to have almost become meaningless. But I like to do a contiguous three-day fast each month, generally Thursday dinner to Sunday dinner. And that should be medically supervised. Uh, and this is largely at the recommendation or based on my conversations with Dom D'Agostino, which comes up later. Now, before I get too ahead of myself, let's listen to McChrystal's specific approach. I have a slew of questions, but the one that I have been asked to ask you, Stan, more than perhaps any other is, why one meal a day? Do you actually eat one meal a day? I do. Um, and people ask me why. Is it some Zen connection with something? And no, what happened was when uh, I was a lieutenant in special forces many, many years ago, I thought I was getting fat. <laughs> and I started running and I uh, started running distance, which I enjoyed. But I also found that my personality was such that I'm not real good at eating three or four small disciplined meals. I'm better to defer gratification uh, and then eat one meal. And for me, that's dinner. And so what I do is I sort of push myself hard all day, try to get everything done and then and sort of reward myself with dinner at night. What time do you usually eat dinner? Well, whenever I'm finished work, in, uh, it would be like 8 or 8.30. There's a challenge when you work really long hours because suddenly you start to eat very late and then you go directly to bed and that, that you feel like you're sleeping with a football in your stomach. <laughs> and do you drink uh, coffee earlier in the day? I'm just thinking with the workout and that many hours, a lot of people would would fade. How do you prevent yourself from fading? Yeah, I have a tendency. I'll drink coffee. I'll drink other beverages too, water and, and different things. And I do find that there are certain days your body just says, eat and eat right now. And I used to keep a bin of those hard pretzels in my office in Afghanistan, and I'd grab a handful of those. And other times I might be out doing something physical in the military, like road marching, and suddenly your body communicates, eat pretty quickly or you won't keep road marching. And I'll, and I'll do that. But otherwise, uh, I like to stick to the idea of, of one a night. Got it. Yeah, this is, uh, this is a constant topic of conversation in the intermittent fasting worlds and everyone has or Hoffmeckler has his thing the paleo guys have have their thoughts obviously are you uh chris are you a one meal a day kind of guy well when i was uh working for then general McChrystal as his uh aide de camp his last year running the joint special operations command it was sort of a uh, by directive there was no other choice that was just the <laughs> what we call the battle rhythm of the organization and when you know the old man got up to eat that's you did it then or you didn't do it at all um so yeah i've, I've lived on that train um but I, I would be the first to tell others because um 
as, as Dan alluded to, it sort of became the driver in the organization. But this is what we do. And, and I would tell people as his aide, he, he won't judge you if you eat breakfast. This is the way his metabolism works. He doesn't do this as a, as a demonstration of personal strength. This is just what works. So don't, don't think you're impressing him by not eating lunch or whatever. <laughs> um, but there was a, the classic story around this when I first joined the inner circle staff. Um, we had this uh, command sergeant major, who I'll call Jody, uh, a legend in the community. He had been uh, with Stan for about three and a half years at that point. And so I was asking him about the one meal a day thing. And he, he said uh, when he showed up for the first year, he's, you know, two feet from Stan for the entire five years they worked together. And he said, well, this is what this is what the boss does. This is what I'll do. So he did he did a, a meal a day, and he does not have a metabolism that, that drives toward it. And we lived in these little crummy sort of Quonset huts next to the uh, where the headquarters did was. Did you say Quonset huts? You no, know, just sort of wooden wooden huts. Right. Know, pretty Spartan living. About 50 yards from where the headquarters was in Iraq. And uh, Jody said about, uh, about a year into the tour that General McChrystal calls him and says, Jody, get in here. So he runs over to it. What's up, sir? And he goes, and he, he said, I hadn't really looked through his hooch before. And he said, General McChrystal was pointing at these this little tin of pretzels he has. And he goes, I think there's mice eating my pretzels. <laughs> and he, Jody said, I almost whipped up my gun and shot him. And I said, you, you've been eating pretzels? I've been eating <laughs> one meal a day dark for a year, and you had pretzels in your room? <laughs> he goes, it was the most unprofessional I've ever been with a officer. I just storm out of the room. You know, low blood sugar will do that. That was so funny. <laughs> Makes cowards of men. Long distance running and low blood sugar. Working out. Do you work out every day? I do. What type of exercise and why? When I was younger and I got serious about working out, I was a second lieutenant, and I, as I mentioned, I started started getting fat. And I had a first sergeant in my parachute infantry company that liked to run, so we would do loosening up exercises and then we'd run. And so I started running, and so for the first twenty or so years, I ran. I had a one period when I was a captain when I ran fifteen miles a day, seven days a week. Didn't vary. Didn't take days off. Wore lousy running shoes. It was sort of stereotypically all the mistakes you can make <laughs> as I got older and I started to have a series of shoulder surgeries and back surgeries predictably uh, what I learned to do was to alternate so I will run one day I'll lift weight the next day I'll bike when a bike when I'm home and I have that capable so I can round out but for me it's very important to do something literally every day I'll only take a day off when I'm forced to because I've got some weird schedule thing that makes it impossible and when you what does your weight training your resistance training workout look like yeah I I will start at my home if if we're at home and I I go down to my basic uh, basement and I do four sets of push-ups uh, as many as I can do for four uh, sets and I alternate that with a series of abs exercises so I'll do uh, starting with a set of sit-ups, and I'll do 100 sit-ups, and I'll flip over, and I'll do three minutes of a plank, and then I'll do some yoga that I learned for about two or three minutes. Then I'll do another set of push-ups, and then I'll go to my next abs thing, which is a, uh, a crunch-like uh, crossover. And then I'll do a two-and-a-half-minute plank, and then I'll do more yoga, slightly different. Then I'll do another set of push-ups, and then I'll do my third set, which is crossover uh, sit-ups, and I'll then do a third plank of two minutes. I'm decreasing each time. Uh, then I'll do some more yoga. And then I'll do my fourth set of push-ups. And then I'll do my fourth, which is a flutter kick, 60 flutter kicks followed by static. Then I'll do my fourth plank, which is now a minute and a half. 
and then I'll come back. I only do four sets of push-ups, so the last time I don't do push-ups, I then do uh, one more set of the crunch-like, and I'll flip over do my last plank, which is one minute, and then I'll do some final yoga. And that'll take me about 45 to 50 minutes. Then I'll leave my house and go to the gym because my gym opens at 5.30. It's three blocks from my house. I assume we mean a.m. Yeah. <laughs> so I can do all this from 4.30. I get it, if I get up at 4, I can do all that from 4.30 to about 5.20, 5.25, go down to my gym. And then when I get to the gym, I do four sets of pull-ups alternated with incline bench press, alternated with uh, standing curls. And then in that, I'll also do these one-legged things, balance exercises as the break between them. Uh, I was taught that was good for balance and whatnot. And I'll do a few other things in that. And I can do all that in 30, 35 minutes. So by 6.15, 6.20, I can be done at the gym, head back home, get cleaned up, and then be starting work. Ready to rock and roll. Yeah. And uh, what is the – why is exercise important to you, uh, when you both when you were overseas and at home? Maybe the reasons differ. But why, why, is, it, why is that routine ritual important? I think it's several things. Um, there's a certain uh, self-image, you know. I think that if I was uh, struggling with my weight, or if I was not as fit as I wanted people to perceive me, and I couldn't perceive myself that way, I think my own self-esteem would would suffer. And particularly over life now, whenever I'm injured and I have even a slight period, it, it bothers me a lot. So I think that's part of it. Second is the military. There's an expectation. If you are not a physical leader in the kind of organizations that Chris and I were in, if you can't do those things physically, you don't have to do it better than everybody else, but you have to do it credibly and they can look up to, then I think your uh, status in the organization is going to go down. I When I was left Ranger Battalion Command in 1996 and I went off to spend a year at Harvard. And I remember one of my non-commissioned officers said, sir, what are you going to do at Harvard? I said, I'm going to study. He says, you're going to work out? And I said, yeah, presumably I will. And he goes, you know, you come back here with a PhD, but you're out of shape. We're going to have a word for you, and it ain't going to be doctor. (laughs) (laughs) And I just thought that was so good. It also puts a discipline in the day. Um, I find that if the day is terrible or whatever, but I worked out, at the end of the day, I go, well, I had a good workout. Almost no matter what happens, when, when the Rolling Stone article came out, it came out about 1.30 in the morning. I found out about it. I made a couple calls. I knew we had a big problem, and I went put my clothes on, and I ran for an hour. Clear my head, stress myself. Didn't make it go away, but that was something that I do in those situations. <laughs> Not long ago, I flew to Florida to interview peak performance coach Tony Robbins, who has long been someone I've looked up to and learned a lot from. He's very good at getting people to not only hear advice, but take action on that advice. Now, aside from asking him to palm my face with his massive hands, that was actually the very first Instagram photo I ever put up, which you can check out on Instagram, Tim Ferriss with two R's and two S's, if you want to see a picture of his ginormous hands covering my entire head. 
But besides that, he allowed me to dive really deep into the various routines and frameworks that he applies almost every day, if not every day. For instance, Tony believes that in a lowered emotional state, we tend to only see the problems and not solutions. Let's say you wake up feeling tired and overwhelmed or anxious for whatever reason. You might sit down to brainstorm strategies to solve your issues, but it comes to naught and you feel even worse afterward. Why? Because you started in a negative state. So you went from state to then strategy. Uh, and in this particular case, you attempted strategy, but you didn't succeed due to the tunnel vision on the problems. And then you likely told yourself self-defeating stories, all right? So you want state strategy stories. For instance, I always do this. Why am I so wound up that I can't even think straight? To get the first piece of this chain uh, set up properly, the state Tony encourages you to prime your state. So he calls this state priming. And priming, my state personally, is often as simple as doing five to 10 push-ups, ideally with ring turnout on rings uh, or on parallettes, or getting, say, 20 minutes of sun exposure first thing, which is what legendary music producer Rick Rubin did to completely jumpstart and uh, uh, resurrect his own health, ended up losing more than 100 pounds after that. Even though I do my most intense exercise at night, typically, where I have a higher pain tolerance, say four to six or seven before dinner, I've started doing one to two minutes at, uh, in some cases at a very most, of calisthenics or kettlebell swings in the morning to set my state for the day. You can also use cold exposure and so on. So here's more on Tony's specific morning routine and his priming approach. What are your some of your daily routines? For instance, what do you typically eat for breakfast, if it's up to you? Yeah, I'm boring as hell um, because I just know it's fuel. Yeah. Um, now, now I, I, before I met my wife, we've been together for more than 15 years, um, I was completely anal. I was yeah. like, I hadn't had chocolate. I hadn't had ice cream in like 15 years. Right? right. I was just just crazy. And then she came into my life, and I'll never forget, I thought, God, this woman's incredible. She's a phlebotomist. You know, she does the blood. She's an acupuncturist. She's a nutritionist. We're having these green drinks, and we had this lunch, and afterwards she ordered a hot fudge sundae, and I thought, what in the hell are you doing? She goes, living, you bastard. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So she loosened my ass up just a bit, which was great, because I loved her. So I, uh, you know, she calls it zigging and zagging. We zig, 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 and then she zags, or we zag. Um, and when I was first with her, I was like, you're zagging. We were traveling through Europe, you know, Rome and Italy and, and uh, you know, various parts of, of France, south of France. And I was like, you know, you seem to be zagging every day. And she goes, well, I'm on vacation. And then later on, we were traveling. She said, I said, you know, the problem is we're always traveling, so yeah. you're always on vacation. But she's fit as hell in great shape. But I'm a, you know, uh, high greens, you know, protein type of guy, very low carbs. Um, and my, but my regimen is I start with something to strengthen and jolt my nervous system every freaking day. I will sometimes ease into it. I'll go in the hot pools. And you know, I'm fortunate enough to have multiple homes. My home in Sun Valley, I have natural hot pools that come out of the ground, just steaming hot. And I go in the hot pools and then I go there in the river. Here, I go in a 57 degree, uh, you know, plunge pool that I have. And I have one every home I have. Every this one will of them be Fiji. immediately upon waking up. Waking up. It's it. just like, boom, every yeah. cell in my body wakes up. And it's also just like training my nervous system to rock that there is no, I don't give a shit how you feel. This is how you perform. Right? This is what you do. Even when I'm taking vacation, I do it. It's just, I don't know. Now I like it. It's a, yeah. I like that, that simple discipline that reminds me the level of strength and intensity that's available at any moment. Even if I'm relaxing, I can bring that up at will. It's mm -hmm. myelin. Right. And I also have a cryotherapy unit in all my homes. Have you tried cryotherapy? I haven't. You know what it is? Uh, maybe you could 
elaborate. I mean, I can I can put the two words together and probably get. Oh my God! With all that you do, you're going to love yeah. this. I'm surprised. I'm I'm glad I'm teaching Tim Ferriss something for the first time. I've done ice bath, him, though, not the first time. Oh, ice bath <laughs> suck. Ice bath suck. Trust me. I'm on stage in a weekend. I do my unleashed power within program three days. It's fifty hours. Yeah. You have been to an event. I, you got to come as my guest to an event sometime. I would love to. The uh, but I'm going to give you an idea. People won't sit for a three hour movie that somebody spent three hundred million dollars on, and I got like. Usher or Oprah going, oh, you know, Tony, I love you, but two hours, most I can do, and 12 hours later, you know, Oprah's standing on a chair going, this is the most incredible experience of my life on camera, and Usher's like, dude, I'm in for all three days, but for me, one of those days alone, I'm, I, you know, I wear an odometer, and I'm uh, Fitbit, and it's 26 and a half miles on average. Wow. We start at 8.30 in the morning, I finish at 1.30 or 2, there's one one-hour break, people can vote with their feet, no one leaves, you know, there's on average, 20 minutes of just crazy ass standing ovations, music stuff that happens at the end because people are just, it's like a rock concert. It's so much right. fun. But the wear and tear of doing, you know, basically marathon after marathon after marathon on the weekend, back to back, it's pretty intense. And so over the years, it's like the inflammation in my body, the demands I've had to do everything I can to reduce it. Nothing has come close to cryotherapy. Cryotherapy was developed in Poland and Eastern Germany. Uh, and the Eastern Bloc countries. And what it does is it uses nitrogen, so there's no water. Mm -hmm. And unlike an ice bath, what you do, and you, know, you get spasms, and you right. got to do them still, right? Yeah. If you're a boxer, or you're a runner, you're an athlete, um, which is what I would do before, hated them. There's no none of that process, but it reduces your body temperature to minus 220 Fahrenheit. And you do it three minutes, and it's mind-boggling. Um, in fact, I have one here, and I'll throw you in at the end if you want. I would experience. love to. You'll, you'll That'd be great. Up. I have a unit here. I'll do it for you. Um, <laughs> but what it does is, and I do it about three times a week usually. Uh, and when I, when I come back from an event, I do it you know, a couple days in a row. And what it does is it takes all the inflammation out of your body, and you know what inflammation does to every aspect of the body and the breakdown. Um, but it also it's, it sends emergency signals to your brain. It's like resetting your neurological system. Because your brain's going, you're going to freeze to death. It sounds horrific. It really isn't. You'll find out it's not that painful. Going in my cold plunge at 57 degrees feels more jolting than this does, even though it's, co even though it's colder. Because, you know, the fluid of water versus the nitrogen right, around you is different. Right, the connectivity. Um, the connectivity, exactly right. And so, but what happens is uh, your nervous system gets a signal. So it's like everything in your body connects because it's like emergency. Every part is a reset of your nervous system. You get an explosion of endorphins in your body, which is really cool. So you get this natural high. You feel this physiological transformation, and you get the reduction of inflammation. What it was used for originally is for people with arthritis. And I found my first one because my mother-in-law was be calling up, and she was just crying in pain, and no medication was enough for her. And I hate somebody medicated anyway. And so I started doing all this research, and it just started to come to the U.S. And now the LA Lakers, most football teams, it's it's spreading like wildfire amongst the sports teams. Um, and so that's where it took off. So. I went and got her one, and I mean, it took her, I think, three sessions, and she's out of pain. And now, there's not a day she's in pain. Now, most people can't afford to go buy a unit, but there are local places now that are popping up all over the United States where athletes go, where people go, where people go for rejuvenation. It's amazing for the skin. Um, but it, it's one of the greatest things. I got it for her, so I got it for me, and then now I'm addicted, so I've got one every and in three minutes. What type of unit? Do you know the, the actual model and the brand that you use? Uh, yeah, there's two of them, the, the best out there. It's... Uh, was it Java? Junka, J-U-N-K-A, I think it is. I'll get it for you when we go and, downstairs. And I'll put it in the show notes for those of you who Yeah, if anybody wants to do it. But also, like, if you're in L.A., there's there's a place there on um, 
Uh, well, I'll give it to you. Put it in your notes. A couple of the locations there. There's some great guys. I'm getting another unit. This is brand new home. So, um, and I'm building a, a you know an additional guest house and, and additional size gym and so forth. I'm getting a unit though that's better. This one is just goes up to your neck, and but I'm getting one that encloses you a full room. And the reason is uh, about 70% of your nerve receptors are from the neck up. So when you step into one of those, it's even more powerful. But other than that, I don't do much unique or different with my life. <laughs> believe that entirely i'll keep digging but uh the so you have the either the sort of contrast therapy that you mentioned the hot cold the cryotherapy yes you have salad and fish yes how far after so what is if you were to kind of spec out the first hour of your day well the uh, first the first every day um i do the water i take in the environment and then the first thing i do before i do anything else my day is I, i do what i call priming and priming to me is uh, different than meditating. I've never been really a meditator per se. I know the value of it. But the idea for me of sitting still and having no thoughts just didn't really work out for me. <laughs> I was just a pain in the ass. And I just thought it's not natural, right? It's like that's where it works. But when I'm in nature, I feel that form of meditation. When I stand on stage and someone stands up and my brain, it's done. I don't even know what it is, but person suicidal. I've never lost a suicide, for example, in, you know, 37 years. Knock on wood doesn't mean I won't someday, but I never have it a thousands and we followed up with them. So it's like, there's something that comes through me and it's, and it's quite meditative. It's like, I experience it as a witness, you know, afterwards. It's, it's one of the most beautiful gifts in my life. Um, so I know that meditation. Um, but for me, what priming is, if you want to be, have a prime life, you got to be in a prime state. And, uh, you know, weeds grow automatically. I don't give a damn what it is. My teacher Jim Rohn used to say that. And so what I do is I get up and I do a very simple process. I do an explosive change in my physiology. I've done the water already, right? Cold, hot. And then I do it with breath because as I'm, I know, you know, all forms of Eastern meditation all understand that, that the mind is the kite and breath is the string. So if I want to move that kite, I move the breath. So I have a specific pattern of breathing that I do. I do 30 of these breaths. Um, and I do them at three sets of 30. And that creates a profound physiological difference in my body. And from that altered state, I usually listen to some music and, um, and I go for, I promise myself 10 minutes and I usually go 30. And you <laughs> do that in this room that we're sitting in? Or? I know I do it all of this one room is where I do it. This has got a great vibe. I'll do this one. I do it at night. I usually will go outside because I love the wind on my face and I love taking the elements and so forth. But I do it in multiple places. I'm on the road. I do it. Doesn't matter what day. I always, I do not miss priming. The reason is I'm not, you know, but you don't get fit by getting lucky. Right. You don't get fit by working out for a weekend. You, you know, you live your life that way. Fitness is because it's becomes just part of who you are. So what I do during that time is I do three simple things and I do it minimum 10 minutes. Three minutes of it is just me feeling, getting back inside my body and outside of my head, feeling the earth, my body experience, and then feeling totally grateful for three things. And I make sure one of them is something very, very simple. The wind on my face, you know, the reflection of the clouds that I just saw there. But I don't just think gratitude. It's like I let gratitude fill my soul. Um, because when you're grateful, as we all know, there's no anger. It's possibly angry and grateful simultaneously. When you're, when you're grateful, there is no fear. You can't be fearful and grateful simultaneously. So it's, it's a, I think it is one of the most important power emotions of life. And also to me, there's nothing worse than an angry rich man or woman, you know, someone who's got everything and they're pissed off. I want Surprisingly to high number though. Yeah, it is because yeah. they, they develop a life that's based on expectation instead of appreciation. Agreed. And I, I tell people, you want to change your life faster than trade your expectation for appreciation and you have a whole new life. So every day I anchor that in and I do it very deeply and emotionally. Then the second three minutes I do is a total focus on feeling, uh, presence of God, if you will. 
however you want to language that for yourself, but this inner presence coming in and feeling that heals everything in my body, my mind, my emotions, my relationships, and my finances. I see it as solving anything that needs to be solved. I experience the strengthening of my gratitude, of my joy, of my strength, of my conviction, of my passion, and I just let those things happen spontaneously. And then I focus on celebration and then service, because my whole life is about service. That's what makes me feel alive. So I flood myself with that with a breathing pattern that I take that does the opposite, takes the breath down through my body and back up again. And then the last three minutes are me focusing on three things I'm going to make happen, my three to thrive. And I, I have some big things that I'll do, and sometimes I'll do things that are smaller, but I see them, feel them, experience them. So it's a really simplistic process, 10 minutes, but I come out of it in my power. It doesn't matter if I had two hours sleep, I'm now ready. You know, it doesn't, and I do this even when I have no sleep. I, that's how committed I am. Um, and as I say, I've always said, there's no excuse not to do 10 minutes. <laughs> if you don't have 10 minutes, you don't have a wife. Right. right. And that's how I got myself to do it. And now that I've done it, you know, 20 to 30 minutes is almost always what it is because it actually feels extraordinary. And where can people learn more about the breathing pattern or could you describe it? Briefly? I'm putting a link online because I just started to share this just recently and uh, I'll get it for you. And I don't know what it's off the top of my head, but it'll be up shortly. I think this week. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. And, uh, I will also put that in the show notes guys. So that's just fourhourworkweek.com forward slash podcast. And you'll be able to find this episode, uh, on the, I have to ask what type of music do you usually listen to? Uh, I have a variety, but for that meditation, I have one in particular, which is a oneness meditation that a friend of mine made it who's from India that I find really profound. It has um, no uh, singing in it or anything like that. It's just the sound of a vibration that's going on, and, and I just love it. But in, that's what I'm doing currently. In the past, over the years, I've used all kinds of different pieces of music. But I don't use uh, modern music or pop music or rock music. I do that to work out, right. um, you know, rap. Um, I don't know. It just feels weird to be doing rap while you're meditating. <laughs> but again, what's different is I don't look at this meditation because I look at it as it's priming courage, love, joy. It's priming gratitude. It's priming strength. It's priming accomplishment. It's priming, you know, when I'm doing my gratitude piece, I'm doing the circle of who's closest to me and, you know, circling that out to everybody I love and sending that energy and healing out to them as well. So to me, that's if you want prime time life, you got to prime daily. Uh, well, I like, the, I like the term priming also because I think that most people who struggle with meditation or even attempt to use meditation are utilizing it for that purpose. They're doing it first yes. in the morning. And, uh, you know, when you said, if you don't have 10 minutes, you don't have a life, it reminded me of something that Russell Simmons said to me, which was, if you don't have 30 minutes to meditate, you need three hours. And, <laughs> and uh, I don't always do 30 minutes, but I do meditate in the morning. And it's been a con very consistent pattern through uh, among all of the people that I've interviewed so far on the podcast. Really? Practically 100%. Wow, that's wonderful. Uh, and, of course, uh, We'll get to Ray Dalio, but yes. also a very avid meditator. He's coming with me to India in a couple of weeks. Well, that'll yeah. be an amazing for a trip, week I'm of, sure. For a week of this experience. Oh, amazing. Wim Hof. Let's talk about Wim Hof. He's a Dutch world record holder who is commonly referred to as the Iceman for his ability to withstand extreme cold. For instance, in 2007, Wim climbed past the death zone altitude on Everest wearing nothing but shorts. He's a bit of a madman. In 2009, he completed a full marathon above the polar circle in Finland in temperatures close to minus 20 degrees Celsius. That's minus 4 Fahrenheit. He holds the Guinness World Record for the longest ice bath, now set at one hour and 53 minutes and 12 seconds. Before I continue, I need to state a very clear warning. You should never, ever, ever do breathing exercises in the water or before training in water. Shallow water blackouts are common after these types of breathing exercises and can be fatal and often are fatal. So do not do any of what Wim recommends close to water or in water. Now, with that disclaimer stated very clearly, some of his methods can produce amazing before and after effects. 
After one in-person training session with Wim, I went from my normal 45-second breath hold or so to four minutes and 45 seconds with no perceptible side effects. Uh, this was a first for me, and this was in Malibu, in fact, at Laird Hamilton's house, who's also been interviewed. He's one of the kings of big wave surfing. Several months later, while in very deep ketosis, about six millimolars or higher after eight days of fasting, again, never to be done without medical supervision. I did the same exercises in a hyperbaric oxygen chamber at uh, 2.4 atmospheres. What was the result? Well, I, there was a clock outside of the chamber and I held my breath for, and I know a lot of people aren't going to believe this, seven minutes and 30 seconds before I stopped because I was afraid my brain was going to melt. The power of breathing exercises is amazing to behold, uh, which is why, in part, his methods have become very very popular. Again, they are or can be as dangerous as they are powerful. Never do this stuff when you are not going to hurt yourself if you pass out. So do it in a chair or something like that, laying down possibly. Don't do it while you're going up an escalator. Don't do it while you are preparing to go into water or anything like that. So here we go with more from my conversation with Wim Hof. You have a, such a fascinating story, and you have a lot of accolades, a lot of records. I think more than twenty world records at this point. It yes. seems. Uh, what was the first world record that you set? The first was in Paris, uh, just staying half an hour in uh, immersed in ice, and uh, twelve days later, I repeated uh, uh, the record time and make it uh, made made it uh, an hour in uh, Hollywood, actually. <laughs> yes, and I saw one also. I mean, you've you've been you spent a lot of time in ice baths, and I've uh, uh, largely influenced by you and a handful of other people, Tim Noakes, Ray. I'm a, a huge fan of ice baths, and my fans always complain about it. But I've seen you in so many containers full of ice. I saw one where it looks like there was a lot of Chinese or Japanese in the background. Uh, what is the, what has been the most challenging cold exposure uh, experience that you've had, whether it's for records or anything else? Maybe uh, losing my sight while I was swimming underneath a, a ice deck of uh, almost one meter. Uh, I had no goggles on. So I lost sight at 35 meters, something like uh, 40 yards, and uh, I lost the hole. <laughs> and uh, yeah, things like that. Shit, shit happens. It happened over there, right there. The meter ice deck uh, above me. So uh, yeah, that was some great experience. Another one was uh, losing my uh, way uh, on Mount Everest in shorts and uh, at uh, like 18,000 feet in a, in a blizzard, in a, like a whiteout. So... Things like that happen, yeah, and uh, <laughs> they are challenging. But then it throws me back to, you know, the depth of myself, to, which is trust and confidence. And, and I got it. What do you say to yourself in one of those moments? So I guess physiologically, did your, did your retinas just freeze? Or when you were swimming under the ice deck, in a, in a moment like that, when many people would panic, I mean, did you panic? If so, how, what was the mental self-talk? when you realized that was happening very interesting it is the stress level at the at that moment is absent it's not there i'm just dealing with the situation 
And mm. it, uh, it has been shown in the university that our stress levels, the stress hormone levels, are able to be raised uh, lying in bed more than somebody in fear for the first time going into a bungee jump. Oh, and going those, into a bu- on, on a ju- doing a bungee jump for the first time. Yeah, yeah, but not me, but because a bungee jump, yeah, you, you are attached. But very unexpected situations in in nature, like a blizzard or swimming beneath uh, ice and uh, losing uh, the hole because your eyesight is gone, things like that, or uh, climbing without gear, uh, steep mountains and uh, having cramps. And what do you do at that moment? And uh, that's exactly what I learned, how to raise consciously the stress hormone level purely controlled, and I'm able to deal with the situation at that moment uh, without panicking. And I think that's one of the crucial findings which could benefit for human mankind as it is, you know, uh, very subjected to stress all the time, panicking, having fear and all that. And I learned in nature how to deal with that. And the cult brought me... Uh, brought me that science, brought me that uh, knowledge, wisdom, actually. And the the raising of stress hormones, so so controlling something that has long been thought to be part of the autonomous nervous system, something that you have no control over, right? And we'll get to the breathing because breathing is very interesting since it's both aut- autonomous, but you can you can consciously control it and practice different methods. Uh, I think it was it was certainly in the Vice documentary that recently came out, which I recommend to everyone, and I'll link to in the show notes. But was it in 2011 that you were injected with some type of virus or bacteria to exactly. see if you could control the immune response? That was at the uh, Dutch, I'm going to mispronounce this, the Radboud University? Exactly. Radboud University in Holland and uh, Intensive Care Nuclear Science. I uh, underwent a, an experiment. And they injected me with an endotoxin, mm-hmm. with a toxin, actually, which is a part of a bacteria. And that creates a, a very dramatic uh, immune response. And as we have no control over the immune response in our body, they thought I was not able to do it as well as expected because nobody showed to be able to suppress the immune response because it is part of the autonomic nervous system. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, nobody is able to do that uh, until now. I showed uh, that I was very able within a quarter of an hour instead of hours uh, suffering from uncontrolled shivering, fever, headaches and all, all that. Uh, I showed within a quarter of an hour uh, to have uh, control complete over the symptoms and uh, also the cytokines, which is our, which are the inflammatory beings in the right. blood created by the immune response. And I showed in the blood and by blood results to suppress them dramatically uh, within a quarter. And then they told me, okay, but you are an exception that confirms the rule because you, yeah, yeah, you have been training so many years, you are the Iceman, you do exceptional uh, features, but nobody is able to do that without that proper training of so many years. 
And I told him, no, I can train them within 10 days. And then the professor was really challenged because if this group would show to be able within 10 days uh, to uh, be able to influence deeply into the autonomic nervous system related to the immune system, then that's for the first time in the scientific history. So, but he, he saw the indication of the possibility, uh, but still thought those guys are not going to be able to do that within 10 days. And you know what? It, it wasn't within 10 days. It was in with four days of training that I made them able to undergo the same experiment that, uh, that means uh, the, the injection of the endotoxin and have them within a quarter of an hour completely control over their immune system related to the autonomic nervous system. So they showed a 100% score of everybody to be able within a couple of days to go in, to tap into the autonomic nervous system related to the immune system. And yeah, and the training about the training be prior to it, we had our beers, you know, in the evening. And, uh, <laughs> and, and a lot of music and uh, very relaxed. And uh, their mindset, I said, hey, guys, uh, probably you, uh, you guys are the new gladiators. Uh, well, we are going to win the, the worst war ever, which uh, produced uh, 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 the, much, uh, the, the most casualties, agony, pain, and all that. And that's the bacteria. Mm -hmm. That's the vaccine. That's the virus. And we're going to win this war. Are you with me? I, I, that's the way I talk to them. And so they had a mindset. So in the evening, we had a relaxed. You know, hey, it was like a hippie movement. But this is a new revolution. And <clears throat> in four days' time, they were able at the fourth day, without prior experience in the cold, they were able to go in uh, shorts at by, by minus 10, that's about, I don't know, in, in, in uh, Fahrenheit, Celsius. This is Celsius. I mean, it's freezing cold. Yeah, yeah. It's and, probably in the 20s, probably in the... Yes, in the 20s. Below in freezing, the 20s. yeah. And then uh, uh, for hours and hours, we were uh, going uphill and up to mountain, and we arrived at the summit after hours, and it was minus 27. Minus 27 Celsius. That, that is uh, more than uh, minus, uh, that, uh, and then 20s. It's uh, probably 10, so, something like that. Mm -hmm. And we danced the Harlem Shake up, uh, up there. <laughs> then I knew these guys, these guys are ready. In four days' time, when they will be uh, internalized in the, in the hospital, and, uh, and injected with the endotoxin, they will be able, because I feel when somebody is uh, back into its natural state of his or hers physiology. Mm -hmm. And I know how to do that. The, the, the cold trained me. The cold is my teacher. And with, the, with these subjects, I'm so curious to ask, because uh, the... Uh, I mean, I am certainly not as proficient as you are in any of these techniques, but I've, I've 
enjoyed experimenting over the last 10 years and writing about these short experiments, whether it's related to breath holding with David Blaine or, or, or other aspects. Um, obviously, you're a professional and I am not. But I'm so, I'd be very curious to hear you uh, perhaps elaborate, for instance, on the first day of training with these subjects bef- uh, in preparation to be injected four days later. Sure. Uh, what did the first day of training look like for them? Um, just in the morning at east at eight o'clock without food intake, we do uh, breathing and they lie on the ground all because that's the most relaxed uh, pose. And uh, if you are relaxed, you are able to store up a whole lot, whole uh, lot more uh, oxygen than when in tension or in posture. So I say to them, uh, just lay down, uh, relax. Now we are going to begin. Just breathe in deeply and let go. Breathe in deeply, let go. Make it a rhythm. Breathe in deeply, let go. Not fully out, but fully in. And let go. And uh, repeat that about 30, 40 times until these indications or symptoms uh, come by, and that it means lightheadedness, loose in the body, feeling loose in the body, tingling, contractions. That's because carbon dioxide goes out, oxygen is roaming freely throughout the body, and the pH levels rise. They are optimized, so they get to their best condition. And uh, that's proven. That's proven. And they saw uh, uh, when we do this, uh, they saw they saw all these results chemically. Then, once you feel positively charged with all these symptoms of lightheadedness, feeling loose, contractions, and tingling in the body, ask them: just breathe in deeply, let go. And now the last time, breathe in deeply. Uh, let go. And after letting go, after exhalation, stop. Refrain from breathing. There is no need. We get a whole lot of oxygen. And uh, uh, measurement devices are not able to detect how much. It's more than 100%. That's my opinion. But devices still are not able to detect that. They only can go up to uh, 100%, as they say. But the 100%, the body is able to store up more oxygen than measurement devices of now are able to uh, measure. Mm-hmm. So then after one and a half minutes, uh, then you see that the measurement device shows 100%. And then it goes dramatically down afterwards. And you're using a pulse oximeter, like something that you clip on your yes. finger? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Pulse exam. So, so you need a heartbeat. You have a heartbeat, and you have the saturation of the oxygen in inside the blood. So the amount of oxygen. So after one and a half minutes, you see with everybody that the uh, saturation of the blood is going down. And you know, people with COPD, mm-hmm. that that's lung diseases and all that. They they suffer from real severe COPD when they have eighty five. We go to 90, 
to 80, 70, 60, 50. People die at 50 and 40, uh, uh, 40% saturation in the blood. We go past. We get, go even to 30. And then the device, measurement device, the oximeter, shuts down. It is not measuring anymore. But we even go past that one. Now, why don't you, why don't the subjects pass out at this point? Uh, they don't pass out. Uh, because they are alkaline. I see. Their, uh, the pH degrees uh, are really perfect at that moment. And in, instead of uh, a person who is dying, is very acidic. Mm-hmm. So that's the difference. So uh, because we are so alkaline, people maybe sometimes are able to pass out, but just two seconds or three seconds because... They get, uh, they are out of their conditioned control. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in a, in a, you know, after exercising, they have a re, a regain, not only control in those moments and, and those situations. They, uh, they win a new part in the brain. They get in very deep in the brain and it's all new terrain. It's like right. a baby. A baby has no problem with, uh, with her legs. But there are no motoric, motorical neurons to the legs yet right. established. So uh, we are going into different parts of the brain where there is where the, the guy or the 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 the, uh, the girl never has been. Right. So it's logic that the uh, people are able to pass out, but nothing happens because they are alkaline. Mm-hmm. So they just wake up and mostly. Uh, uh, or mostly, almost always, they wake up very happy. And uh, it's like a drug uh, experience. Mm-hmm. So, But that's besides of the real effect I'm uh, trying to, uh, not, not trying, w- which we showed scientifically, is to be able to tap into the immune system in all the layers. Those are three layers. And normally... Uh, we are not able to get into the second and the third layer. And I say now we have found a key to the uh, second and the, and the third layer. That means the non-specific immune system and the specific adaptive immune system. And that makes us looking to disease completely different because our ability is so much more... Dr. Dominic D'Agostino. Dom is one of my most popular guests I've had on the podcast. You guys ask for more and more and more. You just love him. He's appeared on the podcast a total of three times, uh, although I recommend people start with the first. Dom is an assistant professor in the Department of Molecular Pharmacology and Physiology at the University of South Florida, Morsani College of Medicine. That's a mouthful. Much of his work is related to nutritional strategies for peak performers and resilience in extreme environments. For instance, he does a lot of work for the special operations communities in developing esters and exogenous ketones that can do things like prevent uh, or mitigate brain damage in hypoxic environments, meaning lack of oxygen, or even extend breath hold times and oxygen utilization and so on. Uh, he's a very impressive guy. He is a highly legitimate athlete in his own right and built like the Incredible Hulk in This last segment that uh, we're going to sample, we get a little into the weeds scientifically, but I know that you can get some great tips from it, so bear with it, and a real understanding of the power of ketosis, or at least the ketogenic diet. 
Most important, his information might save your life. There are certain circumstances within which uh, th- that uh, the ketogenic diet or ketosis can be used as a medical adjunct to, say, improve, in the case of fasting, the resilience of normal cells in uh, prior to treatments for cancer, including uh, chemotherapy and so on. It is not intended to be a standalone treatment for cancer, so do not spread that nonsense. But as an adjunct, uh, many people I know who have been diagnosed with cancer uh, have used it so that instead of being laid out the next day after, say, radiation or chemo, they are able to run 5, 10 miles in the morning. And his approach to ketosis has certainly changed my life uh, and helped me to recover from very severe symptoms of Lyme disease. There's a lot of diet talk, uh, but the supplements and fasting can be treated as separate tools. So you don't necessarily need to consume a lot of bacon and heavy cream to get into a ketotic state. Now, for those of you not familiar with his work, here's a very quick primer. The ketogenic diet is often nicknamed keto. This is a high-fat diet that mimics fasting physiology. In other words, what you do when you starve, you get lost in the woods, you start to break down body fat for fuel. Your brain and body begin to use ketones, which are derived from stored or ingested fat for energy instead of blood sugar, glucose. And that is the state of ketosis. The diet was originally developed for treating epileptic children, believe it or not, Uh, but there are many variations, including the Atkins diet, which became very, very popular. You can achieve ketosis through fasting, diet, exogenous ketones, that means supplement ketones, which can come in powder or liquid form, or some combination of all of those. One of the most common questions I get is, how do you know when you're in ketosis? I don't think the urinalysis strips, the keto strips are very reliable, because as you become fat adapted, uh, you excrete fewer of these ketone bodies. And the most reliable way at this point in time is using a device called the Precision Extra, X-T-R-A by Abbott. A-B-B-O-T-T. You can buy it on Amazon and other places. This can both measure glucose and uh, blood levels of ketone bodies, specifically beta-hydroxybutyrate. So you prick your finger and uh, you feed it into this device. And once you get a readout of 0.5 millimolars, M-M-O-L, that is a concentration in your blood, you can consider yourself lightly in ketosis. I tend to feel the most increased mental clarity and so on at one millimolar or higher. Now, here we go with more of Dom's wisdom. Please enjoy. Let's define ketosis. What what is ketosis? Let's. Uh, I guess we could, could talk about nutritional and sort of fasting ketosis. But what, what is ketosis exactly? And what are ketones? Okay, I kind of like to start out with fasting. Right? Sure. So Perfect. we're if we're on a normal diet and we stop eating all of a sudden. Um, we will mobilize and use up our stored glycogen, mostly in the liver, right? And uh, our central nervous system more or less demands that we have a steady fuel supply to our brain. And in the absence of glucose availability, uh, we'll be depleting our, our liver glycogen. The insulin levels will be suppressed and we'll start mobilizing fatty acids for fuel. But fatty acids long-chain fatty acids don't cross the blood-brain barrier very efficiently. The liver, while you're suppressing the hormone insulin, you'll upregulate beta-oxidation of fatty acids in the liver. And an accumulation of, of products from fatty acid oxidation will start forming ketone bodies. And these ketone bodies are they're more or less like water-soluble fat molecules, that, and they're small molecules that can readily cross uh, the blood-brain barrier and get inside cells into the mitochondria. And uh, as we 
fast, within about 24 to 48 hours, we'll start registering ketones to the level that clinically is defined as being in ketosis, which is you know, above 0.5 millimolar typically. Yeah. So a person on a, a high carb diet would probably take about 24 to 48 hours to start even getting into mild ketosis. And But fasting is the fastest way to get into ketosis. And that's why if you have a child with drug-resistant seizures and they're administered or they're, uh, they're admitted into uh, a place like Johns Hopkins, the, the old protocol was to fast them. Uh, they, they're not exactly sure if that's absolutely necessary with things like uh, more with ketogenic diets have MCTs and stuff. But you can um, – fasting has classically been the fastest way to get into ketosis. So the ketogenic diet has a macronutrient ratio uh, that's high in fat, typically 90 to And by macronutrients, we're referring to protein, fat, carbohydrates. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, maybe ketones could be the fourth macronutrient, maybe, Mm -hmm. (laughs) if you talk about exogenous ketones. Right, right. uh, So a ketogenic diet has a macronutrient ratio that, that mimics the metabolic physiology that you have when you're fasting. So if you were to take the blood out of someone... You know, do a blood sample of someone on a strict ketogenic diet. It would look like they're fasting, like they've they've been fasting a few days. That changes your physiology incredibly. Like your metabolic physiology changes acutely, and then there's there's long term changes that occur with that uh, epigenetic changes. You know, we know that that beta hydroxybutyrate, which is a ketone body, can have a, a, a you know interesting effects on gene expression. What types of effects? Uh, well, there was a science paper showing that uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate is an HDAC, class 1 and class 2 inhibitor, and can activate genes that play a role in enhancing uh, endogenous antioxidant mechanisms, specifically superoxide dismutase and catalase. So these, these mechanisms, when they're upregulated, it confers protection against the environment. It, it sort of enhances our cellular defense mechanisms. It uh, enhances the robust kind of protective mechanisms that the cell has that can preserve the genome stability. So maybe being in a state of ketosis and maintaining that can protect your DNA from damage. So that's the implications. Um, also anti-inflammatory. So we, we published a a paper uh, our colleagues actually did it at Yale. Uh, I developed the diet for them and sent it up to them. It was exogenous ketone. But the paper demonstrated that it activated or prevented the activation of a particular inflammasome that's, that's linked to age-related chronic diseases. So it inhibited, inhibited a specific inflammatory pathway way that is really associated with all chronic age-related diseases. And it was independent of the ketones' effect on metabolism. They uh, did a lot of studies to tease out the mechanism and, and demonstrated that, that the effect of it you know, suppressing in this inflammatory pathway was uh, completely independent of its metabolic effect. So we understand that, you know, when I got into this, I just knew that ketones were an energy metabolite. So now we know it's much more than a metabolite. You know, it's an, it's an HDAC inhibitor. And the, how do you spell that? I apologize. HDAC? Oh, yeah. A histone deacetylase inhibitor. So HDAC would be HDAC. Got it. And then there's class one, two, three, I think four. 
So class one and two uh, HDAC inhibitors are a big, big are of big interest to the pharmaceutical industry. So there are many, for example, we do a lot of cancer research. There's a lot of pharmaceutical uh, companies focusing on uh, histone deacetylase inhibitors for as targeting specific pathways to right. for cancer therapy. So, so you have an endogenous HDAC inhibitor, mm-hmm. you know, uh, with beta hydroxybutyrate. Not, not to interrupt, but just for people who want to keep endogenous and exogenous straight, I've always found thinking of exoskeleton as sort of outside, uh, as, the, as an indicator of outside. So if you're taking exogenous, please correct me if I'm getting this, if I screw this up in any way, Dom, but if you're taking mm-hmm. exogenous ketones, that means you are you are consuming ketones from outside of your body. And endogenous is something you're producing yourself. Yes. Uh, uh, what was the study that you did on advanced lifters as it related to ketosis? And what's what's kind of the abstract on that? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's under review right now. Ah, uh, got it. And yeah, I'll, I'll give you kind of like the synopsis of it. So we had uh, 12 subjects, and these were advanced uh, resistance-trained individuals meaning that they could squat and deadlift uh, and bench a certain percentage, you know, of their body weight, which is kind of puts them in the range of, you know, the top 10% uh, of, of lifters out there. Just out of curiosity. I got to go back. It was, it was some funky number, not like to, it was like, you know, 185% or 75% of their body weight squatting for, you know, seven reps or eight reps or something like that. It. So it was pretty, it would be, uh, it would be like me. Let me see squatting, you know, 425 or something okay. for a set of six or something yeah, like these that. Are very, so it's pretty significant. Yeah, significantly advanced trainees. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, the gist of that is that we did a, a parallel. The control group was on a Western diet and which is pretty similar to kind of, you know, moderate protein, higher in carbohydrates and, and moderate fat. And the ketogenic diet had roughly 75 to 80% fat, restricted carbohydrates to about 20 to 25 grams per day. And, uh, and the fat was also supplemented to some extent with MCT oil and coconut oil. And all the subjects, it was two weeks they had to be on the diet and had to confirm ketone levels by blood and urine. And once they did, we only did a two-week adaptation, which is kind of another subject we could talk about. But they adapted for two weeks and then kind of trained the heck out of them. And every workout was done in the lab in a human uh, performance laboratory. Um, and every everything was recorded. The volume was controlled. All the parameters were controlled. Uh, blood work was done. And uh, the, the take-home on it was that strength, you know, body composite, or I would say strength and performance were maintained and increased. And there was muscle hypertrophy was seen with a ketogenic diet. And uh, there was similar increases, yeah, in power, in hypertrophy. And the big, the big difference was kind of the overall body composition was more favorable in the ketogenic diet group, meaning they had similar increases in lean body mass, but they lost proportionally more fat. And uh, that's the study that we completed. It's under review right now. Uh, The first journal kicked it back. So we went in for another journal and did some follow-up work with it. Now, what is your... uh... What is your hypothesis, or maybe you already know, but how would you explain the maintenance or even development of hypertrophy and power in the ketogenic group when a lot of people associate, say, insulin 
uh, with different growth factors and whatnot. And I, I had a conversation, I want to say it was with uh, Stephen Finney, very short conversation, and I asked him this because I had been in a ketotic state for two or three weeks and had experienced uh, a, a non-trivial amount of muscle growth, and I was really surprised by it. And uh, he explained in terms that I, I can't recall, but how the ketogenic might, diet might have a, I guess, a, like a branch chain amino acid sparing effect of some type. But is it possible to get very big and uh, powerful <laughs> on a ketogenic diet? And if so, what's the mechanism in the sort of absence of higher spiking insulin levels? Mm-hmm. If that is the parent anabolic yeah. hormone, and I'm not saying it is, but a lot of people view it that way. Yeah. So, you know, there's insulin and insulin signaling, right? Uh, certain diet, like when you calorie restrict a rodent or even, you know, humans or any mammal, they, you will enhance insulin sensitivity, right? right? So you will be more more sensitive to a given amount of insulin. Uh, and I think we're seeing some of that in, in the athletes. I mean, exercise itself is, you know, enhances insulin sensitivity. So in, in guys that are uh, advanced lifters who've been at it for like 10 years may have a different response to a ketogenic diet than, say, a 15-year-old kid, you know, who's trying to bulk up for football. Right. You know, he would probably not be a good candidate for uh, for the ketogenic diet. You know, your sensitivity to things like IGF-1 and insulin are much higher when you're younger, in your teenage years especially. So you could compromise a lot of your potential development and strength if you're younger in doing that. But if, you know, say, guys, the older we get, the less carbohydrate tolerant we get. So we lose you know, our ability to kind of process carbs as we get older and our insulin sensitivity declines. Uh, you know, it's going back to your question, as it relates to being on a ketogenic diet, we know that ketones are anti-catabolic. You know, that's why we right. can fast for 40 days. And the ketones have an anti-catabolic protein sparing effect. And if our, our blood is flooded with ketones, we're less likely to liberate gluconeogenic amino acids from our skeletal muscle for fuel because the ketones can more or less replace glucose as the primary energy energy substrate to maintain your central nervous system, which is, you know, like 3% of our body by weight, but sucks up like 20 or 25% of the energy. It's a big metabolic engine. So the ketones kind of drive a lot of that substrate, you know, energy need. Uh, so in a, in a situation where you're at a, at a, caloric deficit, I think that's where ketones can shine. You know, if you're trying to make weight, if you're trying to preserve or even increase your performance and strength, you know, and, and alter your body composition. So if I don't think the ketogenic diet is ideal, if your goal is maximum, uh, a purely ketogenic diet, I think, you know, there's different, we have to kind of figure out what ketogenic diet we're talking about. <laughs> but I don't think a purely ketogenic diet, as it's kind of uh, described in the literature, right, a 90 or 85% fat diet is an ideal diet for growth and repair. Uh, the diet that we use in our study is actually a little higher in protein, like 25% protein, which is like really almost double that used by the you know, by the Johns Hopkins group that developed the classical ketogenic diet. And it's really that, that protein level is important. So growing on a classic ketogenic diet would pretty, be pretty hard. I mean, kids do it. Their growth rates are a little bit less 
you know, uh, with these kids that have uh, drug-resistant seizures when they're put on the diet. But if you simply just do what's called a modified Atkins, and there's a lot of literature coming out now on the modified Atkins. Eric Kossoff at Johns Hopkins, he's a colleague of mine and more in the clinical realm, and he's done a lot of work showing that a modified Atkins, which is about 70% fat and like 20 or 30% protein, is... Uh, has the same sort of ability to metabolically manage seizures. And I think that sort of diet can be used pretty successfully in the performance world and specifically for bodybuilders. I think with that amount of protein, you'd be able to grow muscle for sure. And it's calories too, right? I mean, calories are the driver, your caloric intake. If you have a surplus amount of calories, you're more likely to push insulin up mm -hmm. and, and drive anabolic processes. Uh, but a lot of times people, when they follow a ketogenic diet, because ketones have a really good appetite suppressant effect that they will inadvertently restrict calories and, and may not even know it after a while and, uh, and maybe losing weight without even trying. And that's, I mean, that's, one of the benefits, I guess you could say, of the ketogenic diet, you can lose weight and you can alter your body composition without necessarily even trying, just through the appetite suppressing effect. Well, there you have it, folks. That is the latest Tim Ferriss Radio Hour featuring some of the experts I've spoken to in and across more than 200 episodes. What? Of this podcast. That's crazy. The Tim Ferriss Radio Hour is an experiment and it takes a good amount of work. So it's now over to you. I want you to tell me, do you like it? Do you not like it? What should we do more of? What should we do less of? Please tell me how we can improve it, what topics you would like us to explore. In other words, I just want your feedback. Let me know what you think, please. So ping me, send me a note on Twitter at T Ferris, T-F-E-R-R-I-S-S, or on Facebook or on the blog, tim.blog forward slash podcast. That's where you can find every episode of the podcast, tim.blog forward slash podcast. And as always, and until next time, thank you so much for listening. Hey guys, this is Tim again. Just a few more things before you take off. Number one, this is Five Bullet Friday. Do you want to get a short email from me? Would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little morsel of fun before the weekend? And Five Bullet Friday is a very short email where I share the coolest things I've found or that I've been pondering over the week. That could include favorite new albums that I've discovered. It could include gizmos and gadgets and all sorts of weird shit that I've somehow how dug up in the uh, the world of the esoteric as I do. It could include favorite articles that I've read and that I've shared with my close friends, for instance. And it's very short. It's just a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, check it out. Just go to fourhourworkweek.com. That's fourhourworkweek.com all spelled out. And just drop in your email and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Headspace. More than 80% of the people I have interviewed, world-class performers across the military, entertainment, sports, and beyond, all have some type of meditative practice. I tried for years and years and failed miserably. The key is making it 
simple, and you can dramatically improve your life in just 10 minutes a day, and technology can help you. This change comes through guided meditation, and Headspace is by far the most popular app for this purpose. More than 4 million users, it's meditation made simple. So what I recommend is that you take this practice, meditation, which is rooted in thousands of years of tradition, supported by thousands of scientific studies, and try it for 10 minutes a day, for 10 days. That's all you need to do. You could also check out the founder, Andy Pudicombe's uh, TED Talk, which has more than 5.5 million views. His last name is P-U-D-D-I-C-O-M-B-E, if you want to look that up. But otherwise, download the free Headspace app, I have it on my phone, and begin their Take 10 program for 10 days of guided meditation, completely free, 10 minutes a day, that's all it takes. You should give it a shot headspace.com forward slash Tim. Just go to headspace.com forward slash Tim. This episode is brought to you by Audible, which I've used for years. I love audiobooks, and I have two to recommend right off the bat. Number one is perhaps my favorite audiobook of all time, and that is The Graveyard Book by Neil Gaiman, the only audiobook I've wanted to immediately listen to a second time as soon as I finished. It's amazing. You will thank me. The Graveyard Book. The second is Vagabonding by Rolf Potts, which had a huge impact on my life and formed the basis for a lot of what became the four hour work week. So all you need to do to get your free audiobook and a free 30 day trial is go to audible.com forward slash Tim. And you can choose one of those two books, the graveyard book, vagabonding, or more than 180,000 audio programs. So that could be a book that could be a magazine that could be a newspaper. could be a class. It's that easy. Go to audible.com forward slash Tim. That's audible.com forward slash Tim and grab a book. Enjoy.